Ecclesiastes, or the preacher, is a man on a mission. He is trying to find the meaning in life, but he has limited his search to things, quote, under the sun. His boundaries are here below, what's earthly and what's material and what's physical. And he's experimented with science and with philosophy and with pleasure and with business and with fame and with religion and with wealth and with long life and with large family and with great power. And Ecclesiastes has concluded, all is vanity. It's just all emptiness. Life is a wild goose chase without a goose. Life is like chasing after soap bubbles. Put all your effort into achieving your goals only to grab it and squeeze it and end up with nada. Life is a letdown. For a time, Solomon's life was a knot that refused to come untangled. Reminds me of the poster. A man standing there in his workout garb. He's exercising. He's staying in shape. And the caption at the bottom of the poster reads, I'm doing what I can to prolong my life, hoping someday I'll learn what it's for. Eventually, Ecclesiastes does figure life out. Life takes on meaning as it relates to God. But before he draws that conclusion for us, he's going to hop us down a few more rabbit trails. Chapter 7 begins. A good name is better than precious ointment. Did you hear about the man who died in a shootout? His brother was a mobster. And he's actually shot doing his brother's bidding. This mobster was a violent criminal. And he approached the pastor of the local church and he asked if he'd officiate at his brother's funeral. He said, I just want you to say that my brother was a good man. The pastor said, I can't do that. Everybody knows he was a lying scoundrel. I can't say he was a good man. I've got some integrity here. I would never tell a lie. Well, the mobster pulled out his checkbook and he wrote a $10,000 donation to the church building fund. The pastor thought again. He said, well, okay, I'll see what I can do. So he got up at the uh, funeral and he turned to the congregation. He said, ladies and gentlemen, he said, we all know the deceased was a dirty, low-down, rotten scoundrel. But compared to his brother right there, he was a good man. Hey, we all know it takes a lifetime to build a good reputation, but only a few short hours to tear one down. Solomon knew the value of a good reputation. Ecclesiastes said in Proverbs 22 verse 1, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor rather than silver and gold. I've heard it put like this. Every man has three names. The name his father gave him, the name other people call him, and the name he acquires himself. Well, what name have you acquired? When your name gets brought up in a conversation, what impression do the folks who are talking have? Well, a good name is better than a precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Solomon's saying if given the choice, most people would prefer to attend a birthday party than a funeral. As torturous as it might sound to you at first, if you've ever been to one of these, 
Chuck E. Cheese is still better than awake at Tom Wage's funeral home. Now, I know at the time you thought, man, I'd rather be died than to go to Chuck E. Cheese. But, you know, still, if given a choice, you know, you'd certainly rather go to a, to a birthday party than a funeral home. And, and yet, Solomon says that funerals are more beneficial than birthday parties. For funerals remind us of the inevitability of death. Humans force us to think what we often try to avoid, and that is that one day we're all going to die. A funeral forces us to face death squarely, to consider, quote, the end of all men. He says in verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The person who laughs and parties his way through life is the fool. He never gets serious about life. Remember in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. Sorrow is a part of life. And sin and its effects should cause within us a certain sorrow and a certain mourning. Here's a great poem by Robert Browning Hamilton. He says, I walked a mile with pleasure. Oh, she chatted all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she. But oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. We often learn more from our sorrows than we do from our joys and from our mirth and from our happiness. C.S. Lewis once wrote, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience, but he shouts to us. In our pain. Well, verse 5 says, It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. Oh, a rebuke is often hard to stomach, but when it comes from a wise person, it's profitable, more so than just a silly song. He says, For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. This also is vanity. The laughter or the mocking of a fool is like the crackling of a campfire. It's loud, it's bright, but oh, it burns out quickly, doesn't it? Whereas the rebuke of wisdom lasts a lot longer than the mocking of fools. He says, surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason. And a bribe debases the heart. Bribes subvert justice. The love of money is the root of all evil. The end of a thing, he says, is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Notice this. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. You know, often the first steps of obedience are the most difficult. The renouncing of our sin. The dying to our selfishness. The the releasing of a bad habit. The prying away of a temptation. You know, often the the beginning of a thing uh, is very hard. It gets easier as you go, but the beginning is very hard. It's, It's often said the cross precedes the crown. The cross comes first, afterwards the crown. Remember when Jesus turned his water into wine? Remember the miracle there in Cana? It was said of the host that he had saved the best wine until last. 
At the time in rural Galilee, most of the wedding planners, they would serve the good stuff first. Then they brought out all the cheap wine for later. After everybody was a little tipsy, you know, then they, they lost their little finer taste. Their taste buds had gotten numb. Then they'd bring out all of the, you know, all of the cheap stuff and nobody could tell the difference. You know, this is the way it is with the, this world's pleasures. I hope you know that. The more we taste and the more we try to enjoy or the more we try to experience, the more bored with it we become. Oh, in the beginning it's thrilling, but how quickly it loses its thrill. It loses those chills. But with God's blessings, it's just the opposite. He says the end of a thing is better than its beginning. The longer you stick with the Lord, the better it gets. Verse 9, do not hasten in your spirit to be angry. For anger rests in the bosom of fools. Boy, a quick temper is bound to get you into a lot of trouble, isn't it? Verse 10, do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. This is a great verse. Solomon, in essence, is saying, stop always talking about the good old days. You know, they were never quite as good as you remembered. Oh, for the days when we... Didn't have to worry about high gas prices and car repairs and new tires. And Boy, if we could just go back. If we could just forget about cars and just go back to when we had to wake up 4 o'clock every morning and feed the horses. Or when we had to walk everywhere we went. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Not so bad after all, is it? It's been said usually the good old days are a combination of a bad memory and a good imagination. Rather than long for the good old days, we need to make the most of today. This is what Solomon is telling us. Verse 11, wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. But the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Consider the work of God for who can make straight what he has made crooked. Here's the key to serving God. It's not to try to bend His will in your direction. You can't make straight what God has determined to be crooked. Don't fight with God. Serving God is is finding what God is up to. And then getting involved in what He's doing. Not trying to bend His will to us. It says verse 14, In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. Do do you remember what Job said to his wife in Job chapter 2? He said, shall we indeed accept good from God and shall we not accept adversity? That's a good question that we all should ask ourselves. We love his blessings. But what about his buffetings? What about his burdens? Do we readily accept them as well? Solomon is saying here that God gives us blessing to keep us happy and burdens to keep us humble. God gives us both. Prosperity and adversity has purposes for both. Paul wrote to the Philippians, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, when I, when I read that verse, I think of the football team that's about to go out and kill the other team. We can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
well, can you lose graciously? That's what Paul's saying. He says we can win triumphantly and humbly. We can lose graciously and with the right attitude. We can accept adversity. We can accept prosperity. We can do all things through Christ. That's the proper understanding of that verse. Paul sees God's purpose in both prosperity and adversity, and the strength that God promises us is to deal with them both. Through Christ, I can handle whatever life might dish out. Verse 15, I have seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) who prolongs life in his wickedness. In other words, life isn't always fair. Good people sometimes suffer. Bad people sometimes get away with their crimes. So, he says, concludes, do not be overly righteous nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp this and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. Now, what in the world is Solomon telling us? (laughs) Make sure you don't misunderstand Solomon. He's not telling us to just settle for a life of compromise. Hey, become a good fence straddler. That's what you need to be. That's not what he's saying. He's not telling us don't be a goody two-shoes. But don't be a hellion. You know, just try to find some middle ground there. You know, just be a decent guy who parties on the weekends. Okay, just do that. That's not what he's saying. Solomon is not advocating some kind of half-hearted commitment to God. Now, the preacher has already pointed to death as the proof of our futility and our fallibility. You know, the fact is, is that we're all sinners. We're all sinful human beings, and we will all be sinful human beings Until we're redeemed, until we receive new bodies, until we enter into the gates of glory, into heaven itself. Thus, in our attempts to be good in this life, we are never going to overcome our flawed humanity. None of us are ever going to be perfect. And so don't expect perfection from yourself. If you do, what's going to happen? You're destined for disillusionment. How many people? have expected too much out of themselves, and as a result, they've thrown in the towel. They've just sort of quit. They've given up on God. The problem, though, is they were trying to be overly righteous. They were trying to, to have some kind of sinless, spotless perfection, which is impossible for any of us. That's what he's saying. Do not be overly righteous. But on the other side, do not be overly wicked. Don't take the opposite approach and just sort of concede defeat in your battle against sin. Well, I'm a sinner. I just can't help it when I sin. So I might as well just go out and sin to the hilt. That's foolishness. Where's the fear of God in that? No, God has promised us the the ability, the supernatural ability to walk in victory. He has. Not sinless perfection per se, but certainly a measure of victory in our lives. So here's the balance Solomon is saying we need to grasp for ourselves. Don't give in to failure. But when you do fail, don't let failure bury you. That's the balance. We're all humans in need of God's grace. We can never forget that. Don't give in to failure. But when you do fail, 
Don't let it bury you. This is a father's job in the life of his kids. Son, you can do it. You can do it. You can do it. Then when he doesn't, it's okay, son. There'll be other days. You know, you'll bat again. Don't worry about that strikeout. You know, that's, that's the fatherly instinct God is sharing with us here. There's a great balance here that we need to reach in our lives. You know, we, we all are going to fail at times. But don't let that failure bury you and, and stifle you. I, I think this says it best. Christians aren't sinless. But they will sin less and less as they grow. That's the balance. Well, he says in verse 19, Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Once again, he said, there's no perfect people. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. This is great advice here. You know, you can't shut people's mouths, but you can shut your own ears. Disgruntled employees make all kinds of statements about their boss. Have you noticed this? Which may or may not be true. An employee gets denied vacation. Oh, he's such a terrible, terrible boss. Whereas nine out of ten people probably would have made the same decision as the boss. But when you hear the employee grumble and complain, you'd think that the boss was a merciless tyrant. I mean, Pastor James wants vacation. I I tell him, James, you, you can't take vacation every other week. And... But then he goes off and talks to you and you hear him complaining and grumbling. Thinking, that mean Pastor Sandy. Whereas if you were in the same situation, you'd agree with me. Be careful. Consider the source and don't draw conclusions without all the facts. He says, do not take to heart everything people say. That's good advice. Verse 22, for many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. (laughs) You know, we've all been on both ends of that stick, haven't we? Where where things that were not true were said of us, but then there's been times when we've said things of other people that weren't true as well. We should take heed to Solomon's warnings since we all know how easy it is to jump to the wrong conclusions. He says, all this I have proved by wisdom. I said, I will be wise but it was far from me. You know, here's another trail that turned up a dead end for Solomon. He knows the value of wisdom, but he's not always been wise. He was the wisest man who ever lived, but he acted foolishly at times, and this frustrated him. He says, as for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can find it out? In other words, wisdom was elusive even for me. Like everything else he had tried, he realized that wisdom wasn't the ultimate answer. He said, I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things. To know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. You recall Solomon's story. You remember God came to him and granted him one request. Here it is, Solomon. You got a blank check. Just fill it in. Whatever you choose, it'll be granted. And you remember the king's choice. It was a wise choice. He chose not riches, not power, not long life, but he wanted wisdom. Wisdom to rule justly and righteously. 
But here's what derailed the good outcome that wisdom promises. Verse 26. He says, And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Oh my. Feminine charms have often nullified a man's wisdom. Well, Solomon is saying that women can trump wisdom. That's what he's saying. The allure of a woman can turn the wisest man into a blubbering idiot. Have you, have you noticed this? This is what happened to Solomon, was it not? He started out so well, but his expanding harem overwhelmed his wisdom and led him away from God and down a road of vain pursuits. Wisdom. Uh, Women, the lust for women can trump wisdom. It, It gets into a man's head, begins to make bad decisions, strange decisions, weird decisions. Guy was going great until he met that girl. Oh my, that's why it's so important who you marry. That, that you marry a, a woman who keeps you on the right track. Because once, once you fall in love like that, she can take you down whatever road she wants to take you, man. She can just steer you, she can play you, she can, she can manipulate you, she's got you tied to her little finger. You're on a string from then on out. So make sure you, you're careful as to whose string you get tied to, okay? Verse 27 <clears throat> Here is what I have found, says the preacher, adding one thing to the other to find out the reason which my soul still seeks. But I cannot find one man among a thousand I have found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Wow. Solomon's experiences had soured his attitude toward women, had they not? You know, he says, I've looked, and I can find one wise man among a thousand, but I've never been able to find a wise woman. That's what he's saying. Now, this is not necessarily God's opinion, understand. But this was certainly Solomon's opinion. In fact, listen to these verses in the Living Bible. They they come out interesting. It says, This is my conclusion, says the preacher. Step by step, I came to this result after researching in every direction. One-tenth of one percent of the men I interviewed could be said to be wise, but not one woman. Now let this be a lesson to the single women here tonight. Let this be a lesson to the single women. Think this through through with me, ladies. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. What was a concubine? It was a sexifier. Kind of like a pacifier, but just a sexifier. That's what a concubine was. Kind of a stripper girlfriend. That's what a concubine was. Now, catch... Understand this, there were 1,000 women at Solomon's disposal every single day of his life, every single evening of his life. And since he is king, 
None of these girls are going to say no to him. Which proves this. You can give a man all the free sex he can handle, and it will not increase his respect for women. Think that through. This man has such a low view of women. He says, I can't find any wise woman. Evidently, all of his free sex, evidently, all of the women at his disposal didn't increase his view of women. As a matter of fact, it decreased his view of them. It decreased, he de- it devalued them in his mind. You see, just the opposite is true. When men use women for sex, they don't respect them. They use them. You don't respect what you use and what you manipulate. Solomon is great proof here. He, he has all, this, all these women at his disposal. He's got all this free sex available to him, but it doesn't translate into a greater respect for women. Just the opposite is true. It causes him to disrespect women to the point to where he says, I, I cannot even know a wise woman. Interesting. Verse 29, truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. Oh my, man's our own power. The reason we got such a mess around us, it's our own fault, he's saying. God made life perfect. It's not his fault that the world has gone haywire. Man created the mess that he's in. Well, chapter 8 says, who is like a wise man and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the sternness of his face is changed. You know, a wise man knows not to take life under the sun so seriously. He can laugh at himself. He's a man who becomes grateful for small favors. You know, the wise man has lowered his expectations for life and intensified his hunger for God. Do you know this is one of the keys to your happiness? Is lowering your expectations of life, but intensifying your hunger for God. Verse 2, I say, keep the king's commandment for the sake of your oath to God. Now, we all are under some authority in our life. Either the government, or our boss, or our husband, or our parents... The Bible teaches obedience to authority. But there are limits to our obedience. Ephesians 6 verse 1 tells us, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. But note the parameters there. In the Lord. No child is required to obey an illegal or an immoral or an unbiblical command. The same is true in a wife's obligation to her husband. The same is true in a nation's subordination to its leaders. You remember when Peter was commanded by the Jewish leaders not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus, he responded, we ought to obey God rather than men. At times, it is our duty to rebel against authority. Thomas Jefferson put it, resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. And yet practically... As a worker, as a wife, as a child, as a citizen, how far are we required to go in obedience to authority? And the next eight verses provide us some helpful principles here. Verse 3. 
Do not be hasty to go from his presence. Now, there may come a time when civil disobedience is called for, but don't be quick to pull the trigger, he's saying. First, make sure that you exhaust all of the legal channels available to you first. You recall Daniel's response when the Babylonian king ordered him on the non-kosher diet? You know, rather than immediately rebel against the command, he was respectful. He appeared before the king's servant and he offered an alternative. And an exemption was granted. So, so his first advice to us is, is when it comes to authority and, and rebelling against authority, don't be hasty here to go from his presence. Be, be respectful. Don't just be rebellious. Also, he says, do not take your stand for an evil thing for what he does, for he does whatever pleases him. In other words, when you resist authority, make sure that you're on the side of righteousness, not evil. That your cause is good and godly. Verse 4, where the word of a king is, there is power. And who may say to him, what are you doing? In other words, even in dissent, you know, you can respect the role of the king. I mean, he's the king. Disagree with his policies if you like, but don't disrespect his position. He's still the king. He still has authority over you. He says, he who keeps his command will experience nothing harmful. In other words, obey the laws and you'll you'll have no problem. Son, just remember, if you drive a speed limit, you don't have to worry about the police. I wish I had a quarter for every time I've said that. And a wise man's heart discerns both time and judgment. Because for every matter there is a time and a judgment though the misery of man increases greatly. You know, there may come a time when we need to express our dissidence. But wisdom looks for the right time, in the right place, in the right way. Yes, your misery may be increasing greatly. But catch your boss at the right time, approach him in the right way, and you'll get better results than if you catch him at the wrong time and approach him in the wrong way. Learn how to appeal to authority, he's saying. Verse 7, for he does not know what will happen, so who can tell him when it will occur? You know, it's wait for the right time, and you may just find that some situations take care of themselves. You may not even need to act. Verse 8, no one has power over the spirit to retain the spirit, and no one has power in the day of death. There is no release from that war, and wickedness will not deliver those who are given to it. Here's another point. No one has absolute control over another man. There are limits to authority. Death takes orders from no one, not even the king, not even the president. God dictates when a man is born and when a man dies. Life and death are God's domain, not the king's. There are limits. Verse 9, all this I have seen and applied my heart to every work that is done under the sun... There is a time in which one man rules over another to his own hurt. Oh my, that's tax time. That's April 15th. Now Romans 13 teaches us that God uses the governing authorities to keep order. But the fact that he does, doesn't guarantee the government's efficiency. Or its wisdom. Or its benevolence. He's saying bad government is still God's representative. You know, this is what blows our minds. God is willing to use evil rulers 
and wasteful government. Don't forget this. When you consider how far do I have to go in obeying the government, remember that Paul wrote to the Romans about obedience and submission when the government at his time, in his day, was the most evil man to probably ever sit on a throne. It was the Emperor Nero, who was a horrendous fellow, murdered his wife and mother to protect his throne, took Christians burned them at the stake to light his nighttime revelries, clothed them in animal skins, and then threw them to the wild dogs to watch them get mauled. This was Nero. God still uses government, even even evil government. Verse 10, Then I saw the wicked buried who had come and gone from the place of holiness, and they were forgotten in the city where they had so done. This also is vanity. Solomon here mentions the hypocrite. He was wicked at heart, but he never missed a trip to the temple to practice his religion. In fact, he played at religion. But once he died, he was forgotten. And his so-called religion and worship was nothing but vanity, he says. Verse 11, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily. You know, you run that red light. You may think you got away with it. You just breathe a sigh of relief. You can go home. I beat that red light. And you can be happy for the next, oh, week or so. Until you get that letter in the mail. With a little picture of your car and your bumper sticker. And your teenage son in the front driver's seat it makes you so mad. But you thought you thought you got away from, with it, you know. But but uh, you did. You see, what a man sows, he reaps. It's true. What a man sows, he reaps. The problem is, you you don't always harvest in the same season that you sow. There's a delay. There's an in between time. Between sowing the seed and reaping the bounty. And this in-between time, it can embolden the evil man. For he thinks he's gotten away with his crimes, his sin. Whereas this can discourage the good man. Because he thinks, oh, I've done right and, and there's no reward. God doesn't care. Both men need to be aware. There is a payday. One day. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and his days are prolonged. In other words, he thinks he's outwitting God. Yet I surely know that it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, nor will he prolong his days, which are as a shadow because he does not fear before God. His judgment will come. There is a vanity which occurs on earth. That there are just men to whom it happens according to the work of the wicked. Again, there are wicked men to whom it happens according to the work of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. Oh, the wicked prosper, the righteous suffer. It's such a cause for irritation and frustration. And it adds to life's confusion, Solomon says. Solomon knows that there's going to be a heavenly, eternal judgment above the sun one day. But in the here and now. In the right now, this, this whole perplexity 
adds to life's frustration and to its meaninglessness. And this quandary is never better seen than in our judicial system. This gets real frustrating. Wicked men drag out their cases with endless appeals. They often walk away on a technicality. It's terrible. It, you, you just, you just, it just adds to the meaninglessness of life. Robert Frost defined a jury as follows. Twelve persons chosen to decide who has the best lawyer. That's what it's come to today. And when we see this, it's just so frustrating. Verse 15, he says, So I commended enjoyment because a man has nothing better under the sun than to eat, drink, and be merry For this will remain with him in his labor all the days of his life, which God gives him under the sun. Solomon has failed in his existentialist exercise. He's looked for some transcendent meaning to life under the sun, but he's come up empty. Life is so frustrating, he says, you might as well just enjoy whatever pleasure life may afford you. And so, go home tonight and eat a big bowl of ice cream. Forget about your diet. Who cares? Just eat some Briar's ice cream on your way home tonight. Go by the store and buy Briar's. Don't buy the cheap Kroger brand. Buy Briar's. Get the real thing, baby. Put it on your credit card. Who cares? Don't, don't drink the cheap Maxwell House that you buy. Go, go out tonight and buy you a $5 cup of coffee. Go to five bucks. I mean Starbucks. I call it five bucks because there's nothing there less than five dollars. But go out and drink a five dollar cup of coffee. Enjoy your life, man. Enjoy it while you can, he says. For when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, even though one sees no sleep day or night, then I saw all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. He said, I searched 24-7 for some purpose in life. I stayed up day and night looking for answers, but I found none. Life is just a tangled knot. That's what he says. For though a man labors to discover it, yet he will not find it. Moreover, though a wise man attempts to know it, he will not be able to find it. Chapter 9. For I considered all this in my heart, so that I could declare it all, that the righteous and the wise and their works are in the hand of God. People know neither love nor hatred by anything they have seen before them. In other words, on the surface, life just doesn't make sense sometimes. Two plus two doesn't always equal four. The dots don't always connect. Life can be a riddle. It can be a quandary like a Rubik's Cube. Life can be an unsolvable puzzle. And you'll walk away from life sometimes just scratching your bald spot. You know, Moses concluded as much. He noted that there were truths impossible for man to comprehend. In Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, he says, The secret things belong to the Lord. There's some things that only God understands. A finite man will struggle to know an infinite God and his, all his wisdom. You know, Solomon's response to life's perplexity, catch this, is to accept it as is. He just takes life as is. He worked hard. And what 
came to him fairly and righteously. He enjoyed it to the fullest. But he left the problem of pain and suffering and all the other unanswerable questions. He just left it to God. Sometimes that's all we can do. Is we take life for what it is. You know, it is what it is. How many times have you said that? And sometimes you just got to take life for what it is. And, and take from it what God gives you and enjoy it. And then leave the unanswered questions to God. That, that's the best way to cope. I, I like the famous prayer of Reinhold Niebuhr. He, he wrote this. Oh God, give us serenity to accept the things we cannot change. Courage to change the things we can change. And wisdom to distinguish the difference. That's a great prayer. Well, in chapter 9, verse 2, Solomon brings up mankind's number one frustration. You see, the greatest problem with life is death. Man, death spoils everything. He says, all things come alike to all. One event happens to the righteous and the wicked. To the good, the clean, and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice, as in the good, so in, is the sinner, he who takes an oath, as he who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That one thing happens to all. The atheist, the believer, the good guy, the bad guy, everybody, happens to everybody. Truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live, and after that... They go to the dead. Everybody is going to die. Nobody gets out of this life alive. We're all dead. We're all, you know, we're all dead. We're dead men walking. That's what we are. Death is the great leveler. We don't like to think about it, but life has one common denominator. He says, we're all going to die. You know, the statistics on death are pretty impressive. One out of every one person dies. I, I like what Woody Allen used to say. It's not that I'm afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. But he will be. Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what you've done. You're going to die. It's an appointment that we all must keep. History records Robert E. Lee's final words. They were these. Let the tent be struck. Every one of us will one day take down the tent. These physical bodies, they're just temporary. They're just tents. Under the sun, men share a common destiny, and that's death. It's above the sun. That's where the road forks. Understand this now. Under the sun, we all die. But above the sun, the road forks. One road leads to heaven, and the other road leads to hell. Puritan pastor Thomas Watson, he wrote these sobering words. He said, eternity to the godly is a day that has not sunset. Eternity to the wicked is a night that has no sunrise. How true. I like verse 4 here. But for him who is joined to all the living, there is hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. There you have it. You know, in ancient Israel, dogs weren't pets. You didn't have dogs in Israel at that time. You know, dogs were like in Haiti, you know, today. Dogs are scavengers, man. They're not pets. 
They're on the level of a rat. They're dirty and they're mangy and they're despised. Whereas the lion is the king of beasts, the majestic animal. Nevertheless, he says, a living mutt is better than a dead lion king. As long as you're alive, no matter who you are, there's hope. There's potential to repent. And yet, the moment you die, you forfeit any possibility for change for all eternity. Death should be the most ominous thing that you face. Because it means the forfeiting of of change. That's what death is. It seals your state forever. That's why death is such a big deal. Die without Jesus and you'll live without Jesus forever. Die with Jesus and you'll live forever with Jesus. This is why death is such an important thing. And preparing for death is the most important element to living, to life. Here he's saying though, in a sense, it's better to be a living dog than a dead lion. At least you still have the possibility for change. He says, for the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love, their hatred, and their envy have now perished. Nevermore will they, sh- will they have a share in anything done under the sun. In-, in other words, too many people live as if they're going to live forever. Don't be foolish. Nobody is guaranteed their next breath. Your opportunity to live, to love, to, to hate, to show envy, to, to be a living person and all that that means. It's temporary. You can only experience this life right now for a short time. If there's a statement you need to make, you need to make it today. Because once you're dead, those chances are over. Case closed. Your file is put in a box and put in a shelf somewhere. It's over for you. If there's something you need to do for God, do it today. If there's something you need to do for someone else, do it today. If there's something you need to do for yourself, do it today. Eat that bowl of ice cream tonight. Tomorrow it may be too late. That's what he's saying to us. And here in the middle of chapter 9, the preacher draws some important conclusions. He says that in light of death's inevitability, here are four suggestions for how you should live your life. Here they are. You can write these down. I I suggest you do. First, verse 7, since death is inevitable for all of us, enjoy life. Enjoy life. He says, go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already accepted your works. Life is too short to worry or to sulk. So friend, while you got life, reach for the stars, would you? Stop and smell the roses. Put some gravy on your potatoes. Enjoy the only one and the one and only life you've been given. Take the blessings of God and enjoy them to the fullest. For the only time to savor earth's joys is while you're on earth. Now here's second suggestion, verse 8. Make sure you're right with God. He says, let your garments always be white and let your head lack no oil. White is a symbol of righteousness. Oil is an idiom for the Holy Spirit. The whole point of life here below is to get to know God and to prepare yourself for the life above. Makes no sense to live in God's world without God. While you have the chance, get to know God. Third suggestion he makes in light of the inevitability of death, verse 9, love your spouse. 
Love your spouse. He says, live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life, which he has given you under the sun, all your days of vanity, for that is your portion in life and in the labor which you perform under the sun. Life is too short to waste it fussing and fighting with the person you love. Get over yourself, man, and learn to love. Learn to love another person, not just yourself, okay? Reminds me of Barry and Harry. They're having a conversation one day, and Barry says to Harry, he says, I heard you had an argument with your wife. And Harry says, yeah, she came crawling to me on my knee, on her knees. He says, no kidding. What did she say? Harry replies, she said, well, get out from under that bed and fight like a man. Did, did, did you see the tombstone? It said, to my beloved husband Walter, may he rest in peace until we meet again. Hey, as a Christian, you are committed to your spouse until death do us part. Has anybody forgotten that? Anybody forget that little clause? Until death do you part. That means you're stuck, man. You know, we can dress that up the best we can. We can put a happy face on that. But that means you're you're stuck. Now, some of you are happy to be stuck. But you're stuck nonetheless. Apart from adultery or desertion, there is no biblical, God-pleasing way out of your marriage. So, why don't you work at it? Why don't you try to make it a good marriage? Why don't you make the best of it? If you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. That's sort of true. I don't know quite how biblical that is, but that's sort of true. But learn to love your spouse. You're stuck with them. You might as well love them. You know, you... There is a way out of a bad marriage, and that's to learn to love your spouse. Turn it into a good marriage, would you? You can do it. You know, Kathy and I, we've had a few fights that the neighbors heard. We have. I I know some of you think that living with Pastor Sandy is just such an easy thing, and Pastor Sandy is such a godly man and loves the Lord and uh, oh my, speaks God's truth every, every Sunday. You know, living with him must be a dream come true. I, I know you think that. But Kathy will tell you the brutal truth. But you know, I'm so thankful for a woman who's worked at it, man. Who didn't just abandon me the first time things got tough. But, but who stuck with me even when I was a, a jerk. And who loves me to this day when I'm a jerk. And who tolerates my, my idiosyncrasies and my peculiarities. And who works with me. I'm so thankful for a woman who loves me that way and who's been willing to stick with me for 29 years now. And I even get, I get, I get hints that she's, that she's signed up for some more years. She's, she's actually going to do this again for another year. I get, I'm so excited about that. You know, I've heard it said, often the difference between a successful marriage and a mediocre marriage consists of leaving about three or four things a day unsaid. Do you understand how little it might take 
to improve your marriage? Some of you think that you've you got these huge problems, but you know, if you just started with a few practical things that, that you, you did every day for your spouse, it might blow your mind how easy it would be to get this marriage turned around and get it headed in the right direction. You know, living in marital harmony involves learning to control our tongue, avoiding sarcasm and harsh words, being kind, being considerate to each other. Life is too short, Solomon says, to spar and to trade barbs with your spouse. A woman once said, some pray to marry the man they love. My prayer will somewhat vary. I pray to God above that I love the man I marry. Well, the fourth suggestion Solomon has for us because of the brevity of life, verse 10, if there's something worth doing, give it your best. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Once you're dead and gone, there are no comebacks, man. There are no second chances. Thus, life is too short for half-hearted efforts. If there's a cause worth believing, if there is a job worth doing, if there is a deed worth undertaking, if there is a game worth playing, then give it all you've got. Give it your best shot. That's the way to live life. Solomon mentions another frustration at the end of chapter 9. Verse 11. I returned and saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to them all. In other words, life doesn't always reward the most talented or the hardest worker. And this is frustrating. You know, at times, success is just a matter of being at the right place at the right time. I mean, Solomon is saying that chance and coincidence make as much money as hard work and education. And this is a great frustration, especially if you're a hard worker. And you've spent a lot of time and money getting an education. Solomon is grieved over the less talented person who just stumbles across success. The same success that eludes the guy who labors long and sacrifices greatly. Reminds me of the man who explained how he had accumulated his vast fortune. He says, well, I bought an apple for a nickel. And then I turned around and I sold it for a dime. And then I took that dime and I bought two apples. And I sold them for 20 cents. And then I bought four apples. And someone asked, you made millions of dollars selling apples? The man said, oh, no, I married the daughter of the rich man who had all the apples. Well, you know, we love success stories. The guy who pulled himself up by his bootstraps through work and industriousness and hard effort. But there's always more to the story. There always is. Usually, he had some advantage that the people around him lacked. Solomon is saying, this is a real frustration. It shouldn't work that way. Solomon adds in verse 12, the opposite, he says. For man also does not know his time, like fish taken in a cruel net, like birds caught in a snare. So the sons of men are snared at an evil time when it falls upon them suddenly. And in other words, other men prepare themselves for life only to get snatched up by circumstances they can't control. 
You know, like a little bird, it starts his day thinking he's going to, it's a wonderful day today. Tweet, 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 tweet. Bam! Gets the clamps, just snatched right over it. Snuffs a little life out of it, you know. Just tweeting around, thinking that all day, and then bam! Dead bird. Life is like that, man. Like the fish who goes to school, he's doing swimmingly well, first in his class. There's nothing fishy about his future. He's going to succeed until one day he, he, he bites down on a little worm and all of a sudden, man, he's gone. Where did he, where did he go? He's on somebody's plate getting eaten up. He, he doesn't exist anymore by the end of the day. He's somebody's burp. This is life. And it can happen to you. That's what he's saying here. You know, you, you, you plan your life. You've got all these things that you want to do and all these things that are going to accomplish. And, and all of a sudden, man, things can happen that are outside of your control. And, and there's nothing you can do about it. It's, it's all vanity, he says. Verse 13 tells a parable. This wisdom I have also seen under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it, besieged it, and built great snares around it. Now there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that same poor man. Then I said, wisdom is better than strength. Nevertheless, the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. Words of the wise spoken quietly should be heard rather than the shout of a ruler of fools. And here's another of life's frustrations. Life is pretty frustrating, isn't it? Here's another one. The person who deserves recognition is the person who gets overlooked or slighted. You know, this man, because of his wisdom, he saves the whole city, but nobody ever remembers him. Have you ever come across a situation where someone had a great idea only to have the boss take credit for it? Yeah, you have. These are the kinds of experiences that can really sour you on life, can't they? It had Solomon. Verse 18, wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Here's another frustration. One bad apple can sure spoil the whole bunch. Adam's sin brought ruin on the whole human race. Achan's disobedience caused the defeat of an entire nation. Paul warns the Corinthians that a little yeast can leaven the whole lump. One guy jumps off sides and the whole bulldog front line gets penalized. One person makes a mistake and it can ruin it for everyone else. Solomon says this isn't fair. It doesn't seem right. It just adds to life's disappointment. I wouldn't be surprised if right there on the back of Solomon's chariot, he had this bumper sticker that read, Life stinks. Life is a dream buster. Life is the source of great disillusionment and tremendous frustration. This is why there is only one place where life's irritations are not felt. There is only one place where life's cruelties fade away and where all of life's wrongs are made right. And it's not under the sun. It's above the sun. Only in Christ Jesus do we find real fulfillment. Only when we set our minds above rather than here below do we find real joy. I pray that this week you'll live your life above the sun. In Jesus' name, amen.
when my voice is gone. 